Hey, I'm genuinely excited and grateful for our newest sponsor, Athletic Greens. Thanks to Athletic Greens supporting the Bureau podcast, you get a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens, that's one word, dot com backslash frank to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now to the podcast. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. Federal training in arson and bombing. When I went on board, there was maybe one other woman in the criminal division. Wait, wait a minute, Vance and Alabama? Working on the Eric Robert Rudolph bombing. It was all hands on deck. And a bomb that's underneath the lawnmower explodes, killing him and the family dog. Cases remain open until they're solved. Witness retaliation case. Think about a blind getaway driver. Necessary, but not sufficient. Preaching to the choir. Polarization. Echo chambers. It's like a swarm. Here come the bots and the trolls. May it please the court, I recommend represent the United States of America. You're going to enjoy our next guest as much as I know I am born in Utah, raised in the Los Angeles suburbs, a magna cum laude graduate of Bates College in Maine, uh, got her JD from the University of Virginia, first a private practice litigator. She later made the move to federal prosecutor and became the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. That could be a giant clue for many of our listeners who may already know who our guest is. Joyce Vance is now a distinguished visiting lecturer in law at the University of Alabama Law School. And of course, she's a legal contributor for MSNBC. Joyce Vance, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Frank. Did I get did I get that right? Uh, I I didn't I I learned something that you were born in Utah. What was that all about? That's true. My dad was a photographer, and he and my mom were there, and I was uh, born in Utah. Son of a gun. Okay, you you have literally uh, tra- traversed the uh, the North American continent here. We, uh, yes, I sort of played four corners growing up. We've got you to, from uh, L.A. to Maine uh, now in Alabama. Um, so look, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to this and, uh, oftentimes our listeners and our television viewers may think that we get a lot of time to chat and, you know, during commercials or ad breaks when we're on together on television, but, um, it's not, just not the case. Um, they, they typically don't let us do that. And that's probably a good thing because we, we probably get caught talking about things that we shouldn't be, but well, well that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not nearly as much time as we used to get, you know, hanging out in the green room with COVID in so many ways, we're just less connected. Oh, that was the best part is being in studio and then really getting to catch up uh, and get different theories on what's going on in the world, just in the green room, just uh, having coffee or something waiting to, to go on. You're absolutely right. Even during commercials in studio, those, those, those were those are good discussions as well. All right. 
let's, as they say, start at the beginning. I think a lot of folks want to want to hear about how you became U.S. attorney and, and the journey you took. So let's talk about how you decide it's time to go to law school. This is what you want to do with your career. Yeah, I mean, going to law school, I think, was just sort of always a, a given for me. My granddad really inspired a, a love of the law in ways as I think tried as uh, spending a lot of time watching Perry Mason with me, his favorite TV show. Um, but also being someone who was real committed to justice, to a, a democratic form of government and to community involvement. And his influence made that career path an easy straight line choice for me. Yeah, I think uh, we're all the better for that. We're glad we're glad you did that. And how does an L.A. girl decide I'm first I'm going to undergraduate college in Maine and then UVA? What, what help us out with that decision making? So, you know, it was the same thing. I debated in high school. Um, Bates College, where I went in Maine, had a really fabulous debate program. And I had met the debate coach when I was at a summer program in high school. And so my um, best friend and I made the decision that we would go from California to uh, Maine and that we would debate there. Um, and it turned out to be a really great choice. I absolutely loved Bates and loved Maine, but didn't really spend um, as much time debating in college as I had planned. But it was ironically some friends from debate who were at UVA Law School, who when I was looking at law schools, I sort of looked at their lifestyle and thought, I really like this loss, you know, this lifestyle. They seem a little bit less stressed out than other people. And this is good. Yeah. Law school is stressful enough. So you're, 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 as you're wrapping up law school, what, what are you thinking about areas you want to practice in? How, how, you know, who are you interviewing with? What, what are your, what's your mind working on in terms of where you're headed? Well, you know, like um, a, a lot of kids who were raised by single moms and went to college and law school on student loans, I was thinking about getting out and getting a paycheck. Um, and that made private practice a very logical and easy choice for me. I would have loved to have clerked for a judge, but going straight into private practice made sense. And I had worked for an absolutely wonderful law firm after my second summer, really liked them loved the people, loved that I would have the ability to do some civil rights work pro bono there. And it was an easy jump um, to private practice for me. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, significant cases you worked on in private practice? Um, anything that, that really, you know, is going to stay with you, stay with the law in terms of making an impact? Well, I got to do a little bit of First Amendment work, including, um, you may remember, Pat Robertson, the televangelist who ran for president. And he, uh, while I was there, sued two of our clients, uh, uh, Pete McCluskey, who was a uh, former congressman from California, and Andy Jacobs, who was a sitting congressman from Illinois. Uh, and uh, so that was a pretty interesting lawsuit. I, I had this real blessing of doing a lot of First Amendment defamation kind of work while I was in private practice. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Pat Robertson's still around, isn't he? He is. Yeah. Wow. That's astounding. He often forecasts the weather or blames the weather on bad things that people are doing. I, I know well, that. he was lovely in person. We took his deposition in our offices in D.C. for about a week, and he was unbelievably kind to all of the support staff folks who wanted to come in and speak to him. Cool. Cool. All right. Now, 
we're going to talk about something that I don't think you get asked a lot about, and and that's the move from private practice to the U.S. Attorney's Office there in the Northern District of Alabama, and it's an it's an area in which we kind of intersect in terms of career. Tell us what it was that drove you to the U.S. Attorney's Office as a federal prosecutor. Sure. So I had gotten married to um, one of my law school classmates who's from Birmingham, and we had actually planned on staying in Washington, but I had really fallen in love with Alabama. I had a case in Jackson, Mississippi, was spending a lot of time down here. And, you know, Birmingham seemed like a really great um, full employment plan kind of place to be for someone who was interested in civil rights law. And so I had come down here to a firm, and I guess a year or two after we were married, my father-in-law, who was a federal judge, was was killed. He was murdered by a dissatisfied litigant um, who sent a mail bomb to um, the house. And the DOJ, the federal government, a case that you were involved in investigating uh, as a young agent, I think, did a really amazing job of uh, responding to that situation. And we were so grateful, especially for the way that the prosecutors and the agents treated my mother-in-law, who was injured in the bombing. They were so unbelievably respectful and good about explaining things to her and involving her. And we felt like one of us needed to engage in public service. So we decided that I was at the better point to do it. And I decided I would see if I could get a job in the U.S. Attorney's Office for a couple of years and and do that before I went back to private practice. Yeah, this is a compelling story. the, The trauma of losing a loved one is is impactful enough on our lives. But to to lose a loved one, in your case, your father-in-law to a violent, horrific crime, a, a mail bomb, is horrific. And and then to have it have have your trauma channeled into a choice to move toward federal prosecution, I think is in- incredibly compelling. You know, my intersection here with this is I was a really young first office FBI agent, as we called them. Um, and of course, there are some some poor agents are first office their whole career because they don't they don't move anywhere, <laughs> so they're, they're forever a first office agent. But I was my first office, my, you know, as a Connecticut Yankee, they put me in, in Atlanta, Georgia. We cover the entire state of Georgia, and um, the first uh, Atlanta back in those days, we in the FBI we called it Office of Origin. It was who where was this case centered? Who was coordinating this case? And because the first packages. And some of the, the early bombs were found to have been in Georgia. It was Atlanta that, at least for, for much of the time, was, was kind of running the show until headquarters said, this is, this is a really big case. Uh, we, a judge has now been uh, killed. And so I uh, was running around town like most of the Atlanta office at the time, covering leads, finding clues, um, it was all hands on deck, Joyce, and it, it made it quite an impression on me on what the FBI can do when they need to and the resources available. I mean, we were doing things like, like you, know, the, you know, there were, there were shrapnel and, and nails um, in, in some of the bombs, and we were tracking the origin of the nails, what, what, what um, hardware store was selling them, who was the manufacturer, um, and then tracing the, 
the letters that were used in notes on a typewriter uh, associated with the bombs and and what kind of typewriter and finding the typewriter. It, it was an all hands on deck thing. And I, I just find it astounding. Uh, we, you and I were in studio, speaking of in studio, one time in 30 Rock in New York, when I actually, and, and I think it was during a commercial break, when I actually said to myself, wait, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, Vance and Alabama. And um, that's when I discovered that we had, we had this commonality. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing, right? And the, the crazy thing from my perspective is, and you and I have discussed this, I, I handled some arsons, some church fire arsons in my office, and the arson and the bomb statutes are sort of worked together in parallel. And so when I got arson training, I also uh, was trained uh, as, as a bomb prosecutor and ended up doing a lot of that work in, in my office in parts of Alabama. People use bombs to settle their disputes or explosives to settle their disputes. Um, and so I found myself about roughly 10 years later working on the Eric Robert Rudolph uh, bombing. Rudolph had bombed three venues in Georgia, but the, the identity uh, of the bomber was unknown at that point in time. And then he bombed an abortion clinic in Birmingham and killed a police officer. And ultimately, we realized we had the same defendant. But early on, we were working our abortion clinic bombing alone and what happened, Frank, was the bomb went off early one morning. We actually lived close enough that in our neighborhood, people walked out on their back decks because we had heard it. We had felt the shock wave. And about the time we were out on our deck, I got a phone call from an ATF agent saying, hey, could you hop in your car and, and head on down this direction? But it was incredible. I worked every day for the next four months without taking a day off. We sent out thousands of subpoenas. The agents tracked down exactly what you're describing, right? Our bomb included, it had been hidden underneath a potted plant. They knew the provenance of the fake leaves that were stuffed in the you know, clay pot. I mean, it was unbelievable the meticulousness that permits the FBI and ATF to put together cases in situations like that. Indeed. And we, on the, uh, on the Walter Leroy Moody bombing case uh, involving your father-in-law, we did have an incredible partnership, not only with ATF, but I was paired up with a U.S. postal inspector, which was my very first exposure to them. And I was incredibly uh, impressed and, and continued to be throughout my career on their, their capabilities. There's such an unsung gem. They never seem to get their due, but the postal inspectors do absolutely amazing work. I was trained as a prosecutor um, in part by a postal inspector. Um, I, I benefited really heavily from the agents that I worked with and really learned how to do my job from a postal inspector, from a Secret Service agent, from some great folks at the FBI and from ATF. I mean, it's never other prosecutors that train you, right? When you're young, it's always the agents who help you get to where you need to be. The postal inspectors do more with less resources than anybody else I know. Yeah, tiny, tiny agency. Well, uh, our, our listeners should put on their list of things they never knew about Joyce Vance. She has been trained, federal, <laughs> federal training in arson and bombing. And so that, now you mentioned Fletzy. A lot of our, our listeners won't know what that is. Yeah. It's, a, you know, it's the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center down in what, Brunswick, Georgia, Savannah? It's in Brunswick, right? Just a little bit um, sort of on the coast right there. Yeah, and it's where, you know, except for like FBI and DEA, it's where most federal agents get their get their initial training and, and advanced training. And now, now we know Joyce has been there as well. 
It was a, a wonderful place to learn. I was there for two and a half weeks, and I think I got a couple years worth of education. Mm, indeed, indeed. So, Joyce, this horrible trauma occurs in your family, and you make a career decision. Walk us through your your initial uh, um, approach to becoming a federal prosecutor. Well, I didn't really make a career decision. Bob and I just, I, I mean, we were so appreciative of what folks at the Bureau and DOJ and ATF um, did for our family that we felt like one of us should leave private practice and do public service work for a couple of years. And I had always sort of had that in the back of my mind in any event that that would be a, a great um, thing to be able to do. And so I applied for a job with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Birmingham. I was hired during a Republican administration. I think that's important to say, right? Because people think DOJ has become so politicized. And in reality, that was never true in my office. Republican, Democratic, U.S. attorneys hired people without any regard to their political party. But that really, you know, was, was what happened. They're very competitive, very difficult jobs to get. I was very fortunate in that I had had a little bit more trial experience than most young associates at big law firms, but not a lot. But my office was increasingly doing more white collar work, more white collar prosecutions. And I had some background on the civil side and civil litigation. And so that's what made me lucky enough to get the job. So you interview, um, like everyone else has to do if they want a job, a very prestigious, very competitive job as an assistant U.S. attorney. Um, and if I recall from previous discussions, you're about seven months pregnant when you're going through the interview process. Is that right? <laughs> I was. I was incredibly pregnant with our first child. Um, and he was he was born and not a toddler, but he was six or seven months old um, by the time I went to work. Yeah, I, I uh, enjoyed a story you, you, you've told me before about just making something happen in terms of career uh, and I, I, I hope young people are listening to this because you, you join, you finally get the word, hey, we're hiring you as an assistant U.S. attorney. You're going to be a federal prosecutor. You wanted trial experience. And, and <laughs> tell us, first, tell it's us. True. Yeah. I, and, and many of our, our listeners may not know, trials are kind of rare in the federal system. It's very different than uh, state and county prosecutors. I like to think that some of that is because the evidence that we give prosecutors is so incredibly tight, Joyce, that that the defendants have, true. have no Absolutely. other, they have nothing else to do but uh, but but plead guilty and throw up their hands. But tell us how you you get there, and and you've got experience under your belt. You've you've been an, an attorney already. Uh, you're you're not a newbie. But how do you go about saying, hey, I I I'm, I need trials. Give me some trials. Well, I didn't have the kind of experience that the guys in my office had. And I don't say guys colloquially, by the way. I think when I went on board, there was maybe one other woman in the criminal division. Um, so a very different era because now the office is probably 50-50. There may even be more women than men. But the guys in my office were prosecutors, prosecutors. Many of them had spent 10 or 15 years as assistant DAs in the state system before they became federal prosecutors. They had tried serious murder cases or very involved conspiracy cases, and they were unbelievably fabulous trial lawyers. And so I, I decided that I wanted to try cases. I mean, you know, you get your first few files. Most of those cases are going to plead out. 
There are going to be uh, cases that are on the easier end of the spectrum. And so I just walked up and down the halls in the office and said, hey, if you've got a case going to trial, I'd love to second chair it for you. And, you know, every smart prosecutor wants some young, fresh meat in the office who's going to um, write responses to their motions for them, right? Because trials involve motions or you have to write a trial brief or sentencing memos. And so for the small price of writing a lot of their motions or at least drafting them, I had the great good fortune of trying a large number of cases with some really talented trial lawyers. This is a message I want I want people to, to get here that, you know, you got to advocate for yourself. Ask to help out, especially if you're new. Just go down the hallway and say, who needs help? I'm here. Let's do it. And that's how you learn, right? It's such a great, great thing to do. I mean, people are always delighted to have somebody around who wants to help them out. Yeah. All right. So you, you've you're you've got bomb training and an arson training. Give us a give us a war story. Give us a case you can talk about that involved a, a bombing or a fire bombing that we might we might find interesting. Oh, golly. You know, I was the utility fielder in my office before everything was said and done, because I was always the dumb person who would who would, you know, volunteer. Oh, sure. I'll, I'll do that case that under a statute we've never done before. But I did do a lot of work that involved bombs and arsons. And one of the most interesting cases is a case that remains unsolved, but it happened in Walker County, Alabama, which is oh, about 30 minutes north of Birmingham, very rural, lots of strip mining and, and other sorts of mining goes on up there. And so it's not infrequent that explosives go missing in that area. And I had handled some cases involving stolen explosives. But we had a situation that's never been resolved where one day a gentleman gets onto his riding lawnmower, turns the switch, and a bomb that's underneath the lawnmower explodes, killing him and the family dog. And so we spent a lot of time um, trying to nail down what had gone on in that case. But it's one of those ones that lingers with you. We never did. Obviously, there were some suspects never resolved. And, and when I left off, I actually kept the file with me uh, as a U.S. attorney because hope springs eternal, right? That something is going to happen. I mean, that's not unheard of. But one of the last things I did when I left the office was I had packed up the evidence and categorized it to pass on to somebody who was young, thinking that if nothing else, there might be a state prosecution one day. Well, we're glad. Uh, first, people should know the cases remain open until they're solved. There's still, we don't, you know, the, the federal law enforcement doesn't close a case because they just can't figure it out. They this thing will remain open until until it's solved. But we're really glad you didn't pack up the files and take them, say, to Mar-a-Lago. Um, <laughs> no, I didn't. You know, yeah. I walked out with nothing. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's the way to that's the way to do it. That's the proper way to do it. I sort of regret that. I mean, yeah. I wish I had kept some of the materials I'd like to refer to, but I know. you know, that was yeah. what we did in my office. Yeah, I've got a few plaques, and that's about it. Hey, you another story you shared with me uh, was uh, something about a blind getaway driver. And I, I had to ask you to repeat that because I'm like, do I, did, did she just say blind getaway driver? What was that about? Hey, let's take a minute so I can thank our newest sponsor, Athletic Greens. I've been taking Athletic Greens every single morning for several weeks because I wanted better gut health, more energy, a better immune system, and I hated taking a handful of pills, vitamins, and supplements every morning. So now, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, I'm absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help me start my day right. 
The blend of ingredients supports my gut health, my nervous system, my immune system, my energy level, recovery from workouts, my focus, and it helps with aging. Here's the problem. I've been raving about Athletic Greens so much around the house that when my adult son, who is a triathlete and a fitness and nutrition guy, finds out I've got Athletic Greens, he asks my wife to send him my package of Athletic Greens. It's gone. I need more Athletic Greens. I'll be talking to the sponsor about that. Athletic Greens. Look, tons of people take multivitamins, right, every day. It's important you choose one with high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. And Athletic Greens costs less than $3 a day. Think about that. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your coffee habit. So right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially with the cold and flu season upon us. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens will also send you free a one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs. I use those or at least I used to, with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Frank. Again, that is athleticgreens, one word, dot com slash Frank to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now let's get back to our podcast. This was the first case I ever second shared um, for a really, really wonderful lawyer who went on to be a federal magistrate judge. And he had done, he had done, I don't even remember now how many defendants, a big drug trafficking organization, a very violent group of people. And he had successfully prosecuted the kingpin and his lieutenants and a number of other people. And following one of the trials, a key witness, um, his home was firebombed. His two children were sleeping inside. Fortunately, neither one of them was injured, but Harwell indicted the, the firebombing. Uh, it was a witness um, intimidation, a witness retaliation case. And so I had the great good fortune to go to trial with him. Harwell sort of believed in a teaching by letting people do. So he would just sort of hand me files and say, go ask this witness questions and figure out what you want to do with them at trial. And I realized pretty quickly that we had a very unusual situation on our hands. We had two defendants and one of them was legally blind. And so it's obvious who the driver of the getaway car was. They, they drive up to the home, they do the firebombing and, and they drive away. And our assumption is that the co-defendant, whose name is Dwayne, that he had been the driver. And we start talking with witnesses who they had spoken with afterwards. And damned if it wasn't the legally blind guy who drove the getaway car. And we ultimately get this story that, you know, Dwayne throws the firebomb into the house and then they drive away and he's going, you know, go left, go, go right, no, go straight. Sort of letting the blind guy drive. They were not, though, the most sophisticated criminals known to mankind. Uh, the FBI made a straight beeline and arrested them shortly after the bombing because one of their tires, the, the rubber was completely off. I mean, it was just down to the framing and it left a rut in the road as they drove home. It just left, led a straight line uh, that led the police straight to the bad guys. Sometimes uh, we're not dealing with the brightest of criminals, and that's a good thing. That's, that's very yeah. helpful, very helpful when that happens. 
you know, uh, it, we had a case uh, in Atlanta where, speaking of st- kind of stupid criminal tricks, a uh, guy used uh, his deposit, the back of his deposit slip at the bank to write the demand note when he was robbing <laughs> the bank. That We found that very helpful. Very helpful. Because, <laughs> and the teller's like, I, I think I know who this guy is. Yeah, well, there that's his deposit slip. Yep. Um, that's funny. There, there you have it. Uh, so you're now, the jump occurs from assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, to the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. How does that come about? Well, it was, um, you know, the end of the Bush administration. We had had a Republican U.S. attorney for uh, eight years at that point in time. And uh, Democrats are ready to hand out the spoils of war. But, you know, we don't have a governor or senators in Alabama who are Democrats. We had one congressman And he was a former assistant United States attorney down in Montgomery, Alabama. And so we had a conversation fairly early on where he said, you know, is this something that you might be interested in? And I said, no, absolutely not. I'm career. Because here's what happens when you become a political appointee, you become the U.S. attorney. Then you know that at the end of the your term in office, you're out of the Justice Department. And I had always I, I had been at this point at DOJ for so long. Folks at my old firm kept asking if I was ready to go back, and I never was. I just loved the work that I did. I loved loved standing up in court and saying, you know, may it please the court, I represent the United States of America. I appreciated the the honor and the responsibility that that was. And so I was very hesitant to leave that career status, Um, but ultimately we talked a number of times, and I agreed that I would interview along with some other really talented people for the job, and I was lucky enough to get picked. Fantastic. Um, and so you, you've had a, a fairly unique experience, which is that you've experienced as a, as a victim or a, as a family, the victim experience of having your father-in-law killed in a bombing. Has that informed who you were, how you went about your job, how you handled victim witness issues do you think that had any any bearing on how you, the lens through which you looked at your role as the United States attorney? You know, I think it did, Frank. And in hindsight, I think maybe it did more than I was willing to admit at the time. Because as, as you've pointed out, it, it was a horrible loss. I adored my father-in-law, who was um, really a, a fun person and, and had been a big part of our lives. And so I think you sort of... Um, one coping mechanism that I think I like a lot of people develop is you just sort of uh, box it off and you get to hide behind that wall of professionalism, right? Which in in some ways can be very helpful as you're trying to process everything. But I, I do think it gives you a greater understanding of the situation that victims find themselves in. One of my other U.S. attorney colleagues had lost a sister in a terrorist bombing and I saw how much it informed the way that he interacted on, on victim witness issues, too. I always wanted to make sure that particularly in violent cases, our victims got every bit of service and, and connection that they were entitled to. And I think I think I told you this story. We um, we prosecuted a police violence case. It was up uh, in Huntsville, Alabama, where a police officer had body swept and, you know, a body sweep is this law enforcement technique that's really frowned upon 
but essentially it, in, it involves sort of disabling somebody um, by going underneath them. You can probably explain it better than I can and dropping them to the ground. And the victim in this case was a very, you know, maybe weighed 85 pounds soaking wet, older gentleman from India who had come over to help his son with a new baby and was out for a walk one morning when neighbors called in, you know, suspicious black man walking in our neighborhood. And so this uh, really huge cop uh, body sweeps this gentleman and partially paralyzes him. And it was just such a deeply troubling case, all the more troubling because of both the racial prejudice that animated it and the problems that it pointed to for people in the Indian community in Huntsville, who, who there's an interesting history there. Werner von Braun, the German rocket scientist, had gone to Huntsville when he came to America, you know, to, to help with um, the rocket program here. And his right-hand man was an Indian scientist. And there are a number of Indian families who've remained up in that area. And, and the prejudice and just the lack of understanding that they encounter was astonishing. The community had never really had any interaction with my office before that, which I guess is a failure on our part to really fully reach out into the community like we should have. But we um, spent a lot of time with them. We wanted to make sure that they understood how the criminal justice process was going to work and what was involved and what they could expect. And also, perhaps as importantly, looking forward who they needed to be in touch with if there were instances of, of prejudice. And, and I suspect that um, the work that we did there was probably animated by my hope that all victims would not be confused by the criminal justice system, which is a big, confusing place, uh, even if you have my background. But I was really lucky in, in that case. Um, Vanita Gupta, who's now the associate attorney general, was the head of the Civil Rights Division. And Vanita actually came down from Washington and, and spent an entire day with me, um, meeting with different people in the community and getting to know the family. And I've always been grateful for that support from Washington. Great story. And yeah, the plight of victims and the relationship also with minority communities, so essential to get the work of, of law enforcement and prosecution done the right way. It's not often that I'll promote another podcast on my show, but I will when I listen to it myself and I know my listeners will enjoy it. I want to tell you about Hell and High Water, a podcast about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon. It's hosted by John Heilman, one of the most insightful and energized political journalists in the country. You know him as the host of The Circus on Showtime and from his regular appearances as a national affairs analyst on MSNBC and NBC News. In Hell and High Water, John dissects these tumultuous times with deep thinkers from the world of politics, policy, and culture. People like Brian Cox, also known as Logan Roy from Succession, former ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall, journalist Julia Ioffe and Ann Applebaum, L.A. mayoral candidate, Representative Karen Bass, and even me. If you like in-depth conversations that get at the heart of the apocalyptic moment we are still living through, then you need to check out Hell and High Water. Listen and subscribe to Hell and High Water wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to our podcast. I want to shift to uh, another commonality we have since we are both on cable news and in fact associated with the same network. And we're doing it, Joyce, at a time when our nation is incredibly 
polarized and divided. We've even managed to politicize a pandemic. We've had a, a violent uh, attempt to undermine, overturn an election, a violent attack at the Capitol. And I find myself, I'm, this is kind of a, you know, catharsis for me when I have someone like you on that does this, does something similar that, that I do on TV. I, I frequently find myself questioning whether this is worth it. In other words, we, are, we, are we preaching to the choir on the network we're on? Are we not reaching people who need to hear our explanations of what's happening? And how do you, how do you deal with this issue, polarization, echo chambers, and whether we're, you think we're making any kind of a difference? You know, it's such a um, troubling issue because we do live at this point in America where people get into their own echo chambers and, and live there, right? And don't hear views of people on the other side. And like you, I'm old enough to remember having grown up with three networks where people had a common set of facts that they understood and then made their own analysis or, or that drew their own observations from those facts. But there were not alternate facts at play in the country. And that makes the time we live in particularly difficult. So I, I sort of view the work, at least what I do on television, as necessary but not sufficient. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you've been at the Justice Department, if you've taken that oath of office, I don't think your obligation to the American people and to the Constitution ends when you walk out the doors of the building. I think you have an ongoing obligation to be an advocate for the rule of law. And a big part of that is is explaining it to people. Some people, you know, people who've been to law school or have other affiliation with rule of law related inquiries may know a lot. Other people may only know the basics that they learned in a high school civics class. And so I think it's really important um, to be someone who people can count on to just give them a straight answer to questions about the law. And, and I'm unbelievably appreciative that um, I've had the opportunity to do that on NBC and MSNBC. I get a lot of feedback. I mean, it's unbelievable how many people will go to the trouble of looking up, you know, my law school email address to email me and to ask more questions or people that'll stop you in an airport or, or a restaurant. Um, my husband is always amused because, you know, Frank, people always confuse Barb McQuaid and me. And it's it's so strong that people in airports, if somebody walks up to me and says, oh, Barb McQuaid, I love you on TV. I just say, oh, thank you so much. Um, and then I call Barb. Right. But um, so I, I think that that's the necessary part of what we do, educating people who want to know more. But I think we have to do more than that. And I'll tell you one thing that I've done that I feel pretty strongly about is Here's a shocker. My Trump successor as U.S. attorney, a wonderful guy named Jay Town, who I did not know before he became the U.S. attorney in Birmingham. We've become really good friends. I adore Jay. He's, you know, we're both just prosecutors, prosecutors, and it's what we do. And, and so there are a lot of questions that you have for the person who preceded you in office when you become a U.S. attorney that only they can answer. And so we became friends in, in the course of that. But Jay and I were so concerned by what we saw as this trend of people simply shutting down and being unable to work with, you know, people on the other side of the political divide, which is just Meshuggah's. We decided that we would propose a training to the Alabama bar, which we ended up doing, focusing on 
how do you work with people? How do you relate to people if you disagree with their politics? And what can you do that's productive? And so we would talk about our work. We would, of course, make fun of each other in the process of doing it. But I felt like it was a really good exercise um, for us to share with people our commitment to working together and, and working really for the good of people in Alabama, even though we approach things in, in different ways. What a great uh, practice you've, you've put into place uh, and a lesson for us all. We've got to find people we have a connection with. And, and I think the lesson, one of the lessons here is, look, the career, people have devoted their life to justice, to uh, equality, to the rule of law. It doesn't just, it's not supposed to, as Joyce said, it's not supposed to just go away. Your oath to the Constitution doesn't go away. The way I look at it, people automatically assume, Joyce, because we're on MSNBC. Uh, for, for, you, I, I get, I, like you, you mentioned, yes, people find how to connect with you and they ask questions. I, I certainly get lots of that. I also get some pretty vile vile threats <laughs> and it's uh that's what the delete button is for Frank. yeah no i get that i get that but it's um you know it's often i can tell sometimes when i'm on the air that yep um here it comes i'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> you know i said something bad about trump or some and increasingly if i say something bad about russia here come the here come the bots and the trolls the bots right yeah, oh it's yeah. unbelievable yeah but it's i like a I, swarm you know, I, I love the idea that you're you're even inviting people into your law school classroom that so students can see, wow, okay, that's a Republican and, and a Democrat getting along. And it's and what they really should be seeing is not the Republican and the Democrat, but rather people devoted to getting it right and and to justice. So we need we need tons more of that. And I I, I explain to people, I just I am apolitical, but I I see threats and I've for 25 years of my life, I've been trained to respond to threats and I, I see a threat uh, now as, as people know, and I, that's what I do. I address it, not from a political perspective, but from a security perspective. You know, I think that's a really important point to make um, because I'm a registered Democrat. I, I tend to vote Democratic in, in most races, although not exclusively but when I look at a criminal law situation, for instance, early on when we were looking at how Trump was behaving as a president, I never looked at it and engaged in an analysis that said, I'm a Democrat and, I'm a and he's a Republican, so I have to condemn his behavior. I always looked at what the facts were and what the law was and tried to make just a straight up assessment of whether conduct was or could potentially be criminal. And I think that that's the spirit that animates the work that that all of us do, and that in our best moments, we look at these issues from both sides objectively. It is unfortunate that we lived through a Trump presidency where there was a lot of potential criminality to see, and as you say, an ongoing threat and a risk. But that doesn't come from a place of politics or competitive sport um, which I find to be so distasteful. I read this, the pronouncement that the Republican Party passed condemning Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And if you take the trouble of going back and reading through the resolution that they passed, it's just party over country. It's all about party and winning. And none of it is about country and being an American. And I hope that more of us, even people who disagree about politics, that we can at least agree that we're Americans first and that we want to look at things objectively and figure out what makes the country stronger going forward. 
Indeed. And, and, you know, I, as, as we, uh, as we have this conversation, it's, there's reporting that a crack, uh, albeit a very small crack seems to be developing as the result of that extremely disturbing pronouncement by the RNC, the censuring of Cheney Kinzinger, the, the notion that what happened on January 6th was legitimate political discourse. There are, uh, I think, a, a small but growing group of Republicans going, uh, you know, that was, you may have crossed the line there. And I'll, I'll take it. I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, that's not enough, but I'll, I'll take it. If they're reaching the point of ridiculousness with their own folks, we'll, we'll take it. Yeah, I think we need more of that and pretty quickly if we're going to avoid a yeah, repeat. Indeed. And so I've got, you know, the stuff we do, Joyce, the, 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 what the nation is facing now is so serious. It's, it's so stressful that I want to I wanna end on a positive note, which is there are, there are occasions there and there are people I go to on Twitter uh, that uh, occasionally uh, provide a respite from the <laughs> seriousness that we're in right now. And you're one of them, but particularly because of the chickens. And so <laughs> when I see chickens eating watermelon, I, I stop what I'm doing. And so <laughs> tell, us, tell us about the chickens. So we became pandemic chicken owners. Our, um, our second kid was born with um, uh, congenital birth defects and, and has some immune system issues. So we really hunkered down almost immediately in the pandemic. And that meant that our youngest kid, who was a high school senior, we gave him the choice, let him make the decision about whether he would go to school in person or do school from home. And Ollie is a typical fourth child. He's super sociable, loves his friends, you know, never spent a moment at home that he didn't have to. But he made that sacrifice and did school from home his senior year to protect his brother, which meant that I pretty much was a pushover for anything he wanted. Hey, mom, you know, it's midnight. Can we order insomnia cookies? Sure. How many do you want, honey? Um, and, and that became this blow off comment that he made one day where he said, I sure would like to have some chickens. And so I immediately began researching chicken coops and where to get chickens locally. And uh, my daughter took a, a drive up to North Alabama and came home with um, two baby chicks and a whole bunch of eggs. And we stuck the eggs in an incubator, you know, something I barely remembered um, as a childhood science project, and ended up with a, a very, very nice flock of chickens who live in our backyard and give us and a lot of our neighbors eggs. They're really prolific, but they're so relaxing, Frank. So, some mornings, especially if I'm having a bad day, I can go out there and we have a fire pit right by their coop. And I'll just sit down there and let them run around. And they're the sweetest, most engaging things. They have personalities. Um, I know I fringe sound like that crazy cat lady, you know, the crazy chicken lady. But it's it's very productive. And sometimes I'll do office hours with my students down there when I do Zoom office hours with the chickens running around. And it seems to be really relaxing for everybody. I love it. I, I love it. And I know many of your Twitter followers love it as well. Um, and boy, you know, we are, we're all familiar with the, the national best-selling book, Chicken Soup for the Soul. Maybe you should be writing <laughs> Chicken Coop for the Chickens. Soul. <laughs> there you go. That's wonderful. I may have to steal that from you. Yeah, there you, you go. You, you got it. You can, you can take it. Chicken Coop for the Soul. Chicken hey, Coop. We've been talking to Joyce Vance. Uh, you know her uh, from MSNBC and her contribution to uh, our legal education on an almost daily basis. 
Joyce, I've enjoyed it immensely. Um, let's hope, let's look forward to a return to in-studio work where we can catch up in person. That sounds wonderful, Frank. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for joining Joyce and me in what I hope you found was an outstanding discussion. Now, next time, we're 27 years from the biggest domestic terror attack in the history of the United States, the bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building. Has anything changed? Have we learned any lessons? Is anyone out there trying to make a difference, applying the lessons from Oklahoma City? Next time, we'll talk to Carrie Watkins, the president and CEO of the Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum, and the woman who presides over what I believe to be one of the most moving museum experiences in the United States. Next time on The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. The Bureau is written by Frank Figluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.